Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the first session in my There and Back Again series, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. I'm Alistair Stevens, and over the course of the next 18 months or so, we are going to delve deeply. First of all, I'm going to mute my own computer, because that's a thing that happens, apparently, when I haven't done a live session in quite a while. Over the course of the next 18 months or so, we are going to delve deeply into Tolkien's Legendarium. We are going to look, in turn, at The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and we are going to look at those books in great, some might say excessive detail. We are going to delve deeply. I cannot wait to get started. Tonight, though, we set the stage with one of Tolkien's lesser-known works, but arguably perhaps his most important work. Page for page, word for word, wait for wait. I think you could argue that On Fairy Stories is perhaps the most important thing that J.R.R. Tolkien ever wrote. We're going to get into that in just a little while. I should say right up front that tonight's session, by way of introduction, is probably going to be a little shorter. We're going to move at... Uh, at a fairly brisk pace through On Fairy Stories, but next week's session will run a little longer, and of course, every session thereafter will, I'm sure, push up against your patience and my endurance, my facility to keep talking at an extended pace. Uh, most sessions will take place at Thursday, uh, on Thursday, I should say, at 9 p.m. Eastern time, but I am going to move that around a little bit to accommodate those friends who live in inconvenient time zones. We may do some sessions at 2 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. I'll try and throw in a few Sunday sessions, too, for those who find it difficult to make it through the week. But 9 p.m. Eastern time, Thursday evening, that is going to be our regular date for, as I said, the next 18 months or so. It's going to be a long and grueling adventure. If you're joining me live, then you can ask questions or make comments in the chat window attached to the YouTube video or via Twitter using the hashtag back again. There has been a certain amount of confusion with regard to the hashtag. This was a last minute substitute. We're going to go with it for this week. We'll see how it works out. I reserve the right, of course, to change the hashtag anytime I like. So back again is the one that I'm seeing here. Someone is telling me that there is a... Uh, that there's an audio problem, but apparently only one audio problem. So everything else seems to be working good. As I said, it's been a while since I've done one of these live sessions. So there are always a few gremlins that must be quashed, a few goblins that must be banished back beneath the misty mountains. If you are listening to this after the fact, or you're watching the YouTube video after the fact, you can still use Twitter to get in touch with me, hashtag back again, and I will see that. Or you can email me directly, Alistair at Storywonk. That is A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at Storywonk.com. Guys, this is a big night for me. This is a really exciting moment for me. I have been a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien for effectively forever, effectively for as long as I have been a, a thinking conscious person. I have read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and a lot of Tolkien's other work more times than I can remember. This series, the idea for There and Back Again, has been in the back of my mind ever since I started podcasting about stories and storytelling. It is a huge thrill to get started. Whether this is your first time reading Tolkien, and I know that there are many of you here who have begun Tolkien and perhaps faltered. I've seen some discussion of Tom Bombadil, of course. I've seen some, seen some discussion of the Council of Elrond, which I think is the, the much greater hurdle for those of you who launched into The Lord of the Rings. Certainly, The Hobbit is a very different kind of text. So there are some of you who have begun Tolkien before and faltered on the path. There are those of you who perhaps have never even opened a Tolkien book before and are undertaking this adventure in my company, for which I am greatly honored. And there are those of you who I'm sure have crisscrossed the Misty Mountains more times than you care to remember. Hopefully... 
My plan is that there will be something of value and merit and worth and interest for all of you in this series. So I'm going to try to keep it accessible, but hopefully not superficial. That at least is the aim. It is good to see you all here. We're already fighting about Tom Bombadil. You guys, we're already fighting about Tom Bombadil. We're not even going to get to Tom Bombadil for two months, two and a half months, three months even, but we, we will get him. And if you don't like Tom Bombadil, I will do my level best to persuade you that he is at least interesting, if not perhaps a necessary part of the greater narrative. We'll see what I can do with that. First, of course, we're going to look at The Hobbit, but tonight on fairy stories. But before we even get to that, let's consider J.R.R. Tolkien. And before we even consider him, I guess we should probably talk about the pronunciation of his name. There are two accepted pronunciations, J.R.R. Tolkien and J.R.R. Tolkien. Technically, it should be Tolkien because it is of a Germanic root, and as the professor himself would tell us, therefore pronounced Tolkien. But on both sides of the Atlantic, Tolkien has been so broadly accepted and so so widely indulged in that it's difficult to shake that temptation. I am going to lean toward Tolkien myself, but I'm well aware that this is perhaps the first time that I've said it in this entire session. So I hope that I will have your patience and indulgence as I try to struggle with it. But technically, technically, both are fine and good. So go with whichever is more natural for you. Yes. <laughs> oh, we're making fun of, oh, good, good, yes. Such a fun name to say, Tom Bombadil, that is, says Elizabeth in the, uh, in the YouTube chat. It is a good name. Tom Bombadil, the rhythm of his name, of his words, is enormously significant. We're going to talk about that when we get there. I am not going to talk anymore about Tom Bombadil. One of the primary virtues to which I'm going to hold fast through this entire series is the 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 strict adherence to, to chronology. We're going to look at these books as they unfold before us. I'm going to try not to jump too far ahead because these are, in some ways, dense and labyrinthine tomes. And if we get caught up in the later adventures of our characters, then we are going to lose track of where we are in the here and the now. And as we're going to discuss in a few minutes, the here and the now is vitally important. That sense of presence within a story is vitally important to understanding not just the story itself, not just the author's underlying intent, but the power of narrative in the first place. More on that in just a moment. So J.R.R. Tolkien was born on January the 3rd, 1892 in South Africa, the son of an English bank manager. He moved back to England at the age of three when his father died. He served in the Lancashire Fusiliers from 1915 to 1920, witnessing firsthand the horrors of the First World War, including the Battle of the Somme. After the war, Tolkien moved... Uh, Tolkien worked, excuse me, briefly for the uh, Oxford English Dictionary. He taught at the University of Leeds. Then he moved to Oxford, a place that is now synonymous with the professor. While at Oxford, Tolkien forged a friendship with C.S. Lewis and with the, the somewhat informal literary and poetical discussion group, The Inklings. More on them in a future session. Tolkien was appointed commander of the British Empire, that's the CBE, in 1972, he died in 1973 at the age of 81. Over the course of his academic career, Tolkien was a noted author, poet, philologist, devoted, that is, to the study of historical texts and linguistics. But he is remembered most fondly for the creation of his legendarium, this 
this broad network of interconnected stories from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings to The Silmarillion and beyond The Silmarillion, of course, a volume published posthumously by his son, Christopher. There is an argument to be made that Tolkien's Legendarium, the, the works set in and around Arda, are perhaps the most complex and sophisticated and ambitious works of fiction in the English language. It is easy, though I hope we will not fall into this trap here, to dismiss Tolkien as a fantasy author. He would have been, as those of you who have read on fairy stories know already, he would have been upset at that dismissive tone. He would have been critical of our inability to engage with fantasy fiction as honestly as we might engage with other forms of fiction. And he would have been, yes, he would have been dismissive, I think, of that criticism. These works stand apart, I think, from any other works of fiction in the English language. Nowhere else are you going to find works of such sophisticated and subtle thought, such unerring confidence, such depth, such breadth, such ambition. Nowhere else in the English language are you going to find stories that do all that Tolkien's stories do, that aspire to all that Tolkien stories aspire, that have moved and stirred and motivated people for the better part now of a century. We're going to look very deeply at his work. We're going to look at the how and the why of his work. We're going to look at what these stories tell us, what we can learn from these characters, from these conflicts, from these plots. What can we learn about the underlying nature of the universe as Tolkien sees it? What can we learn about virtue and about heroism and about the greatness of small things? It's going to be an interesting, a fascinating adventure. We can talk a little more deeply about the Legendarium as we move into our discussion of The Hobbit next week. But for now, that is probably as much biographical information as the professor would like me to share with you, because Tolkien was, of course, famously suspicious of biographically inclined interpretations of fiction. He saw the desire to learn about the author, and thereby about the text, as something of a cheat, as, as missing the point that texts exist not as puzzle boxes to be opened, not as riddles to be solved, but as experiences to be undergone and to vitally be shared. In the introduction to The Fellowship of the Ring, this is one of the most famous things that Tolkien ever wrote, I dare say, and one that I've, uh, that I've uh, held to for my entire academic life, at least. In the introduction to The Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien has this to say about allegory. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. There are two important things to pull out here. The first, as the Cat's Corner here in the YouTube chat has shouted in all caps, DEATH OF THE AUTHOR! Yes, that is exactly what Tolkien is referring to here. In, in a sense, at least. It's an incomplete uh, perspective on death of the author, but it is a valid one. 
We can't analyze texts as riddles to be solved. We mustn't analyze texts as riddles to be solved because to do so is to miss the point. As Gandalf would later say to, Sar- to Saruman in uh, The Lord of the Rings, he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. This is one of the reasons that we're going to study Tolkien's work as a text rather than trying to leverage any of the common allegories which have been applied to that work. Most notably, and most distressingly for the professor, the suggestion that the Lord of the Rings is an extended allegory of the Second World War. It isn't. It was never intended to be, and it doesn't map terribly well either. The argument is this. If we study these stories as allegories, as mere representations of a deeper point, then we begin to look for the key that will unlock understanding rather than interpreting what's on the page before us. We will selectively emphasize and de-emphasize, highlight and discard elements and details which confirm our belief about the nature of the story on one hand, or which stand in opposition to it on the other. We stop seeing the story, and we start looking for clues. The other thing that we must note here in this brief excerpt It's right there in the middle of the third line. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. Tolkien's ability to contrast and to a degree conflate true history and feigned fictional history is fascinating. We're going to talk about subcreation. We're going to talk about storytelling in just a little while, but we must note its absolute and fundamental importance to all that Tolkien has undertaken here. The creation of a fake history is still vitally important. It still matters, and it still creates possibilities for applicability. Now, just to draw that out a little, if allegory is the purposeful domination of the author, allegory is the solution to the uh, the riddle which the reader must go in search of, then applicability is a gentler kind of referentialism. Applicability is the ability that we have as readers to draw from a source, to draw from a text, meaning and significance, personal meaning and significance. There may be something in The Hobbit which speaks to your unique experience as a human being. There may be a line that reminds you of a a misspent afternoon in your youth. There may be a conflict that reminds you of something that you have encountered or something that you yourself have wanted to write. That's applicable. There is a connection there. Your response to the text is honest and true and pure and vital, but it is not in any way intended. So Tolkien, by creating these broad canvases, by painting in such profound detail, creates opportunities for applicability. We can find the truth in Samwise Gamgee, for example, or in Faramir, or in Owen and Glowen. We can find echoes of our own experience, of our own belief system. We can find things which speak to us, things which we understand to be true, even though those things were never intended to speak directly to us. That resonance occurs not because Tolkien is creating, is, is crafting, is preparing an allegory for us, but because these stories are internally, themselves, true. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So all of that is to say that we must resist the urge to interpret Tolkien's life 
as a key, as a, a, a cipher that will allow us to unlock these stories. We must resist the urge to look at the autobiographical detail of the professor's life as a Rosetta Stone that will open up these stories for us. That includes, broadly speaking, the details, too, of these stories' composition, the accounts that Tolkien gives of writing the stories as he is writing them. And even, I think, on the periphery, that would include the extensive revisionist history that we have associated with these manuscripts. Thanks to the incredible work done by the professor's son, Christopher Tolkien, we have revision after revision after revision of many of these manuscripts. We get to see how these stories take shape over time, but we must resist even that, I think, as a means of better understanding the story that we're given. We can look at those things as objects of interest. We can track with, with fascination how it is that Tolkien came to write these stories, but we can't ever allow that information, that knowledge, to eclipse our appreciation of the text on the page itself. And that is particularly challenging, I think, when we're dealing with Tolkien and we're dealing with a universe this layered and complex. I'm aware now that I've been talking for a long time and haven't really looked at Twitter, haven't really looked at the YouTube chat. So if you guys have questions, by all means, shout out. We'll circle back around to, uh, to try and cover as many as we can. Yes. Jeff says, applicability lets truth stand for itself without manipulation. Jeff, that is beautifully put. I think you are absolutely right. Yes. Oh, we're having some discussion here about uh, Tolkien's faith. And as opposed with C.S. Lewis, too. Yes, Tolkien was a Catholic, was a Catholic from very early in his life, was a staunch and devout Catholic for his entire life. We'll talk a little, actually, right at the end of tonight's session about one of the ways, one minor and almost inconsequential way in which his faith informed his entire approach to stories and storytelling. Tolkien spoke rarely about his faith in anything other than the most veiled and metaphorical terms. And yet, when you know what to look for, when you can see not the specifics in his work, not the details, not the references, there is no Aslan figure, for example, in The Lord of the Rings. When you know what to look for, though, you can see his philosophy, his theology, underpinning the world that he has created. Some of you may have uh, listened to a couple of recent tipsy poetry readings that I did over on my YouTube channel, which you can find by visiting youtube.com slash Alistair Stevens. I read uh, Tolkien's wonderful poem from The Lord of the Rings, A. Arendel Was a Mariner, and I also read the beginning of the Silmarillion, the Ainu Lindale, the, the story of creation, which is profound and beautiful and not quite the, the Catholic story of creation, but also not, not that. Also not, not compatible with that. It's, it's a beautiful perspective on that story that sits companionably alongside it, but doesn't seek to either subvert or overthrow it. Some fine day, you guys, some fine day we'll have the opportunity to talk to about the Silmarillion. Yes. <laughs> um, let me see here. Sarah Thomas says, Tolkien very much like his contemporaries in his rejection of author bio. That is absolutely true, though there are a few as emphatic about it as, as Tolkien was, I think. Um, yes. And a lot, of, a lot of celebration because we're all hanging out here with the... Uh, <laughs> because we're all hanging out here with the live sessions, guys. I have missed this very much. Yes. Good. Okay. 
Uh, let me see. Yes. Oh, Diane says, yes, I've never seen a philosophy so completely integrated into the work. That is, um, yes, yes. It's so completely integrated that it may even go unnoticed. It is so completely integrated that, that we can sit here and have a discussion about Tolkien's faith, that there are in, in some discourses out there on the internet, that there is a misunderstanding of Tolkien's faith, of his, of his, dedication to his his religious perspective and his religious teachings there is no question at all that he was a staunch and faithful catholic there is no question at all that he was absolutely informed by that perspective on on philosophy on theology but it is so deeply embedded it is so so nested within his fictional creation that it gives us not allegory but applicability there are many of us, I'm sure, who will remember moments with Samwise Gamgee toward the end of The Lord of the Rings, which I shall not spoil, which speak to powerfully Christian ideas and ideals, and yet arise so naturally from the frame that unless you're paying very close attention, there is no direct reference there, that you can miss entirely the, the applicability. And that's one of the great things about applicability, of course, is that it doesn't beat you over the head. There is no purposeful domination. Yes. Uh, Jack says that, that Tolkien's love of nature, history, and faith seem to be the basis of his Middle Earth. Absolutely. And we will talk about each of those three things. Yes, yes. Mm. I would hesitate to say history. He, he clearly is fascinated with histories, both, both real and fictional. I would almost lean toward, I would almost lean toward antiquity. As, as the preferred word there, because Tolkien believed, and we'll discuss this next week in the very opening of The Hobbit, Tolkien believed that, that age and, and, and tradition and antiquity were valuable things in and of themselves, that the world had begun to slip away from the path of, of righteousness and of goodness. He was no fan of modernity. And certainly we will talk about nature. Certainly we will have the opportunity to talk at length about Tolkien's perspective on the natural world around us and on the sanctity of that world in and of itself as distinct from human culture and preoccupation. We'll get to that. Good. Excellent. Okay. Let's take a look then at On Fairy Stories. Um, on Fairy Stories was delivered first as an address at St. Andrews University in 1939. This is two years after the publication of The Hobbit. Tolkien was already something of a literary phenomenon. He was already getting to work on The Lord of the Rings, though that would not be published for many, many years yet. It was then presented in 1947 in a volume entitled Essays Presented to Charles Williams, one of Tolkien's fellow Inklings. And then in 1964, Tolkien published a short volume entitled Tree and Leaf, which included both this essay and the short story Leaf by Niggle, which is one of the more clearly allegorical works that Tolkien ever created. It is still not actually an allegory. It's still not actually quite specific in its reference or, or limited to a specific reference, but it is more, hmm, more specific than a lot of his other work. I do recommend that you, you check it out, particularly if you've enjoyed On Fairy Stories. Do go and read Leaf by Nigel. And if you can find Tree and Leaf, that single bound volume, which also 
in later editions included the poem Mythopoeia, which we're going to talk about later too. If you can find one of those volumes, then by all means pick it up. It's it's a lovely little little bound volume. Um, on fairy stories remains decades later. One of the most important perspectives on fairy stories and on fantasy literature that you will ever read. This is perilously close to being a manifesto in favor of fantasy fiction. And as such, of course, it gives us a perfect starting point for our examination of Tolkien's work. And we are going to begin with this definition of what fairy is. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there, shoreless seas and stars uncounted, beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril, both joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. In that realm a man may perhaps count himself fortunate to have wandered, but its very richness and strangeness tie the tongue of a traveler who would report them. And while he is there, it is dangerous for him to ask too many questions, lest the gates should be shut and the keys be lost. This, then, is the realm of fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E. This is the magical land where fairy stories and fantasies take place. This is the otherworldly realm. Fairy, the realm, is of course populated by fairies, which Tolkien also called elves and other magical creatures. Fairy stories, therefore, are not stories about fairies, though there are stories about fairies. Fairy stories, in the traditional sense, are stories about mortal men and women interacting with fairies or with the realm of fairy. As Tolkien points out in the opening pages of the essay, fairies are not traditionally the diminutive sprites we might immediately picture. You can be certain that when he talked about fairies, he wasn't thinking about the Disney Tinkerbell version of fairies that we so commonly recognize today. He was talking about an older, wilder, more dangerous tradition. Beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril, joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. This is a realm of the fantastic. This is a realm of wonder. They are terrible to behold, beautiful to behold, seductive and perilous. This realm is greater than our mundane human experience. It is wilder and it is weirder. To tread into fairy well, always brings with it a price. Let's take a look at the next slide. I said the sense stories about fairies was too narrow. It is too narrow, even if we reject the diminutive size, for fairy stories are not normal English usage, excuse me, for fairy stories are not in normal English usage, stories about fairies or elves, but stories about fairy, that is fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E, the realm or state in which fairies have their being. Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, and besides dwarves, witches, trolls, giants, or dragons, it holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, and the earth and all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. This is vitally important. 
this is a key clarification here because it is easy to think of fairy, of the realm of fairy as being a distant land across an unknown sea or as being the very depths of the forest or as being that back part of your yard when you were growing up, just behind the bushes where your parents couldn't quite see you. But fairy is more than that. Fairy encompasses everything. There is wonder and magic and awe and terror in the periphery of our vision always, in the periphery of our experience. When we push out past this tame, civil plot of land that we have conquered and call our home, fairy still lingers. And look at those oppositions right there at the end of the passage. Tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread. Tree and bird, obvious enough, of course, of the land and of the sky, the flora and the fauna. Water and stone, opposed but companionable in that sense, and wine and bread, well, if you're not thinking of communion, you probably ought to be thinking of communion. There are connections here throughout, not just our physical experience, but our philosophical experience. There are connections here that speak to our deepest depths, that speak to our core identities, ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted when we leave behind the strictures and the constraints of everyday life, we find ourselves in fairy. We can find ourselves drawn into it, seduced into it. We can find ourselves hurled into it. When we cross that threshold, we find ourselves in a world of much greater wonder, but much greater danger. So where then... Oh, yes. And Jacques says here in the YouTube chat, wine and bread reminds me of hobbits too. Good. Yes, absolutely. And, and the, the mm, interconnectivity of that is not, I think, accidental. The ability of hobbits to, hmm, again, we're going to look at this very specifically next week and then I guess much more specifically in the opening chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring. The ability of hobbits to celebrate, to hallow, to sanctify, though they themselves would never think of it in these terms, of course, but the ability of hobbits to sanctify through companionship and good cheer and food and drink and, and the sharing of these things is absolutely fundamental to hobbit identity, to hobbit culture and hobbits I think as we'll explore and as we'll discuss, being the most developed and most civil, perhaps, of all of the races of Arda, it's only fitting that they should find that, that similarly reciprocal, communal kind of relationship and experience. So that, that's a great note, yes. <laughs> Jeff says, Hobbits and communion, oh, that makes a theology major happy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. Good. <laughs> oh, and we're talking on Twitter too about, uh, yes, Kim is being teased. Uh, Usagi Biker is teasing Kim on Twitter, saying that if I read the whole Tom Bombadil section, we will all love it. Reading the whole Tom Bombadil section might be a little much to bear. Yes. Maybe, maybe just a little much. Okay, let's, uh, let's push on because we want to take a look now. Oh, at, at what is apparently, as it, 
appears here on my screen, a rather large slide. We want to talk about where fairy stories come from. And I want to, hmm, I want to highlight this in a way that Tolkien himself doesn't, I think, quite highlight in the essay, because we're going to talk about the general emergence of folk tales, of fairy tales, this, this collaborative and evolutionary process by which folk tales and fairy stories accrete around these core themes. There are 15 different versions of, of Little Red Riding Hood. There are innumerable versions of The Princess and the Frog, for example. So Tolkien addresses where these stories come from, but then we're going to talk more specifically about the singular creative act. And I want to have those two ideas held somewhat in opposition. I want to, to, to use both of those ideas to interrogate the other. So let's take a look at, uh, at what he has to say on the origin of fairy stories themselves. The history of fairy stories is probably more complex than the physical history of the human race and as complex as the history of human language. I'll take a moment just there to note Tolkien's innate bias there. It's probably more complex than the physical history of the human race. It's as complex as the history of human language. Which of those two does Tolkien find more complex and which does he find more impressive? All three things independent invention, inheritance, and diffusion have evidently played their part in producing the intricate web of story. It is now beyond all skill but that of the elves to unravel it. Of these three, invention is the most important and fundamental, and so, not surprisingly, also the most mysterious. To an inventor, that is, to a story maker, the other two must in the end lead back, Diffusion, borrowing in space, whether of an artifact or a story, only refers the problem of origin elsewhere. At the center of the supposed diffusion, there is a place where once an inventor lived. Similarly with inheritance, borrowing in time, in this way we arrive at last only at an ancestral inventor. While if we believe that sometimes there occurred the independent striking out of similar ideas and themes or devices, we simply multiply the ancestral inventor, but do not in that way the more clearly understand his gift. Diffusion. Inheritance. These are key concepts, I think, in our understanding of the dissemination of stories and storytelling. And this is going to become of vital significance. I dare say that it may not be impossible to read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings without an understanding of diffusion and inheritance, but your experience of reading those stories will be diminished in their absence. To understand that stories pass from person to person, that they spread outward through time and, and outward through space, to understand that stories flow through culture and community, that stories bind culture and community is vital. But always, Tolkien reminds us here, those stories can be tracked back to an inventor, to a creator, to a story maker. And that's vital. Because it can be easy, I think, particularly here in our, our carefully enumerated, carefully categorized modern world, it can be easy to look at the 
entire collected works of fairy stories to to buy one of these bound volumes for your children that has every possible fairy story possibly even every variation of every fairy story you may have a textbook on your shelf as i do enumerating some of those different versions and we might look at those and think that these stories emerged that they simply came into being that they are a natural product of of human culture and human community and in a very important sense that's exactly right because whenever human beings gather together we will tell stories but at the same time they were invented there is nothing huh, natural which is a problematic word because again there's nothing more natural than the telling of stories either but there is nothing natural about the arrival of these stories they were not passed to us ex nihilo they did not emerge out of the void full formed they were at some point created so think on that as we move forward i want to clarify here too i didn't pull this as a slide though now i'm regretting that a little bit um I do want to highlight Tolkien's rather lovely uh, and very his very medieval medievalist, excuse me, uh, separation of two important faculties, two two mental abilities that all human beings share. The idea of imagination, that is our ability to picture something mentally which we have seen or experienced, something which does exist. There is a pen on my desk over there. I can close my eyes and summon forth a picture of that pen. That is imagination, the internal realization, the internal manifestation of something which exists in the real world. That is contrasted by Tolkien, by medievalists in general, with fantasy, or as Tolkien says, the, the corrupted form of that word, fancy. That is the ability to close one's eyes and summon forth the image of something which does not exist, something which is entirely new. There is, I think, a subtle and deceptive but marked and vital difference between closing your eyes and imagining your favorite coffee cup and closing your eyes and imagining a dragon. There is a different creative quality to that endeavor. And that, that speaks very powerfully to the virtue of the fantasist, in the truest sense of the word, versus the storyteller who works in more naturalistic forms. Again, more on that later. So fairy story, <coughs> excuse me. So fairy stories and all fantasy stories involve the creation of untrue things. They involve the creation of fantastical things, things which are not found in the real world. They involve the the hmm, the celebration of the indulgence of, if you like, fancy. And this gives rise to one of the most common criticisms of fantasy literature. And I guess a criticism that has, from time to time, been expanded to include all literature, all stories have fallen under this criticism from time to time. Why read about it if it isn't real? If it isn't true, why are we spending our time reading these stories? What are we supposed to get from them if they aren't real? And why would the story maker waste his or her time making things up is the world not broad enough for you are there not wonders enough contained in your actual physical experience for you why would you go and create new fantastical things when there are things unheard of unthought of right here in the real world and why 
unless you know all that there is to know about the real world, why would you waste your time reading about dragons? Tolkien says this in On Fairy Stories. As for its legitimacy, that is the legitimacy of fantasy fiction, as for its legitimacy, I will say no more than to quote a brief passage from a letter I once wrote to a man who described myth and fairy story as lies, though to do him justice, he was kind enough and confused enough to call fairy story-making breathing a lie through silver. Though to do him justice, he was kind enough and confused enough. What a great justice that is. Um, <laughs> the man who described myth and fairy story as lies, lies breathed through silver, though he isn't mentioned by name in On Fairy Stories, was in fact C.S. Lewis. In response to his friend's argument, Tolkien composed a magnificent poem entitled Mythopoeia, which I haven't included in the reading for this week, but if you get the opportunity, go read it. It isn't long, and it is fantastic. We find in Mythopoeia, which was such an important piece of work for C.S. Lewis personally, that it didn't just change his approach to fantasy fiction. It didn't just open him up to the world of fantasy fiction. It is actually cited by Lewis himself as one of the pivotal, pivotal experiences that led him to his Christian faith. I believe that he, I believe that he took up Christianity a week after reading Mythopoeia and, and, and credited it directly. This then is the, let me call up another very long slide here. This is the excerpt um, from Mythopoeia. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. The now long estranged man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind, Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sow the seed of dragons, t'was our right used or misused. The right has not decayed. We, still, we make still by the law in which we're made. Let's take a moment to break some of this down, because this is... Um, this is a little theologically inclined, and I think that it would help us perhaps, for those of us who are less familiar with, uh, with Tolkien's belief, with Tolkien's faith, to break down some of these ideas. Um, the heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. That is to say that man, the wise there, the only wise there being God, of course, that man, as God's creation, cannot be so flawed, so corrupt as to be compound of lies. That is that we must, if we are created by God in his image, then we must therefore carry truth with us. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. We're talking here, of course, about the exile from Eden. We're talking about the fallen world. We're talking about the, the advent of sin here keeps the rags of lordship he once owned, his world dominion by creative act. This is 
fascinating. What we see here, I think, is a reference, an acknowledgement of, of Adam's original role in the Garden of Eden. And I'm sure that there are many of you out there who know exactly what Adam's original role in the Garden of Eden was, but just in case, he was given dominion. But his job was to name. All of the creatures came to him, and he perceived their nature and granted to them their name. We, human beings, are namers. And to name something isn't just to understand its nature, though that is certainly a vital component. It is also to create the first word of a story. So what we see here from Tolkien is a fascinating and, and singular perspective on the creative act. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. The single white there, of course, the light of God. This is creativity. This is the creative act itself. But that light is only white. And it is refracted through us, through creative individuals, through story makers, though that would encompass all human beings, it is refracted through us into specific colors, into specific hues. Each one of us a slightly different shade of a slightly different color. And thus, in concert, through our own acts of creativity, is that first creative impulse given its full brilliance and splendor and voice. Elizabeth Stevens is calling out here in the YouTube chat, the Imago Dei, of course, yes. This is the, the divine within each of us, the instinct to create here, echoing that divine spark. You'll note that in this instance, we, the, the individual crystalline components of this system, do not generate light. There is only one light, and that is the white light. But refracted through us, we get everything. We get all color. That in order for, for color to be made manifest, we must refract that light. So it is that we get to the heart of Tolkien's argument in favor of storytelling. And, and in particular, let me cancel that slide. And in particular, the heart of his argument in favor of fantasy storytelling. God, to Tolkien's Catholic worldview, is the sole capital C creator. His creation is the primary world. This is the world, this is the, the universe that we ourselves inhabit. Though, yes, it's tempting to, to talk in terms of the real world and, and fictional worlds, but real is a problematic term when we're, when we're talking about we're talking about this, particularly from Tolkien's perspective, of course. So we'll say instead that, that this is our world. This is our shared mundane world. This is the primary world. And our belief in the primary world is a primary belief. We experience this world directly. We interact with it directly. Thus, we have our primary belief. Then human beings are, by nature, by by virtue of our essence, secondary creators. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. 
that we were created and thus we create. But we can't create in the sense that God creates. We can only create within his frame. We can only create secondary worlds. We can't create a new primary world, not even if we all work together, but we can create secondary worlds. We can create fictional worlds, if you like. What's most surprising is that the creation of secondary worlds can yield secondary belief, that stories can move us, can touch us, can inspire us, can, can cause any one human emotion or any combination of human emotions that you can possibly imagine. And those emotional responses are just as real and true and powerful and vivid and important as the emotional responses that we might have to the primary world, to the real world around us. Thus, Tolkien casts our role as sub-creators, as a vital and sacred one, that to tell stories, that to create, to build secondary worlds and summon forth secondary belief is just about the most important thing that a person can possibly, possibly do. We also have, I'm, I'm running a little longer than I intended here, but uh, let's, um, let's see what we can do here. Um, I wanted to talk a little about suspension of disbelief and how this connects to, to secondary worlds. Suspension of disbelief, quote unquote, is, is a, a horrible and trite phrase. It has been a horrible and trite phrase for as long as it has been in use because it presupposes something, it presupposes something mean-spirited about people, doesn't it? suspension of disbelief. If you have ever sat down with a beloved novel or you've ever sat down in, in the, the most comfortable seat in your local movie theater as a long time ago in a, in a galaxy far, far away appears on the screen, you have not been aware, I suspect, of the suspension of your disbelief, that your innate sense is to be skeptical. Your innate position is, with regard to the text is to be disbelieving. That's not true of human beings. That's not how we engage with stories and how we engage with each other and how we engage with the world. Human beings are credulous things. We believe easily and we believe freely and we will invest our belief into just about anything, whether it's movies or books or sports or random circumstances. We will believe. Our natural state is one of belief. Thus, suspension of disbelief puts the focus for me in entirely the wrong place. Tolkien considered the failure of secondary belief, the failure of a reader's engagement with a book to be specifically a failure of the storyteller's art, that human beings do tend to lean into fiction. We want to invest in the story. We want to be carried along by it. We want to be elevated by it. But when the story doesn't work, that is not a failure on the part of the reader. That is a failure on the part of the, the story maker's craft. It is an imperfect story that has not sustained the investment of belief that you have poured into it. We'll see Tolkien talk more than once in, in our upcoming discussions about that investment of belief, but we'll also see it represented fully within the pages of his novels. By the time that we get to the Lord of the Rings and we have characters telling stories 
to each other, um, endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. As we have the sharing of stories, the sharing, too, of songs and of poetry, though that functions very slightly differently. As we have characters sharing these ideals, we will look at the importance of belief and the ability of stories to persuade and to transform themselves. And when we look at those things, you must have in the back of your mind an understanding that secondary worlds and the secondary belief that they generate can be just as important to us as the primary world, as our primary belief can move us just as profoundly, can transform us just as fully, can motivate us as powerfully. So that's, as I say, something to hold on to as we move forward. Um, Victoria says, every time Paper Bullets mentions that we're running a little long like it's a bad thing, I cackle maniacally. I'm glad that I make you cackle at least once in every session, Victoria. Uh, <laughs> good. Wow. Jeff has thrown out a sentence here in the YouTube chat that I could talk about for about an hour. Uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, is a diminution of our humanity because it denies community as our primary means of identity. Mm, it does in part. Um, I mean, the second half of, of Descartes' conclusion, um, cogito ergo sum, is, is one half of it. I think, therefore I am, is one half of Descartes' conclusion. But of course, the other half of Descartes' conclusion is, and also God exists. I know these two things to be true, thus I can rebuild my sense of the universe around me. So one might be willing to argue that, that it is Descartes' community with God that, that, that gives him the ability to, to rebuild his sense of himself and his world after, after falling down the meditative uh, rabbit hole of, of, of his philosophical process there. But I think that you're absolutely right in a broader sense, Jeff, that, that we exist in community, that we define ourselves in terms of the communities of which we are a part and the communities of which we are not a part. We've had this somewhat unpleasant kind of, hmm, this unpleasant tendency to, to talk in terms of tribal identity as though tribal identity is an exclusive and, and limiting thing. And it isn't. We are all a part. We are all the heart of a Venn diagram of overlapping communities, whether that is your family or your, your friend group or your church or the people that you hang out with on the internet. We are all defined in part by those communities and communities are defined. And here's where I bring it back to the actual topic of the evening. Communities are defined by the stories that we tell each other. We are this. We are not that. This matters to us. This does not matter to us. The sharing of stories is one of the most elemental components of community. And not necessarily the sharing of other stories, the sharing of third-person stories, the, the, the pulling in of, of art and of culture and of, of distant stories by distant authors, but the telling of organic present stories. That, I think, is vital. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, see, I got distracted there. That's a thing that happens from time to time. All right. Um, yes. Good. All right, let's push on to then the final, um, the final part of On Fairy Stories, which 
is in terms of our ongoing exploration of Tolkien's work, I think far and away the most important because he introduces toward the end of his essay, really the back half of his essay, the three compensations of fiction, the three compensations particularly of fantasy fiction, of fairy stories. Yes, we've talked about the creative act. We've talked about sub-creation and we've talked about the refracted light and all of that is great. But the creative act can be important without necessarily the receptive act being important. It's important for us to write fairy stories, to tell fairy stories. Why is it important for us to listen to them? What does the reader get from fairy stories? Well, Tolkien breaks it down really rather beautifully into three different elements here. The first of which is recovery. Recovery, which includes return and renewal of health, is a regaining, regaining of a clear view. I do not say seeing things as they are and involve myself with the philosophers, though I might venture to say seeing things as we are or were meant to see them, as things apart from ourselves. We need, in any case, to clean our windows so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity from possessiveness. Now, there are two halves to this idea that I want to unpick because I think that they are equally important. The first is simply this idea that familiarity breeds contempt, that overexposure to a thing prevents you ultimately from seeing it clearly. That the first time you go to a restaurant, for example, you're taking it all in. You're taking in the ambiance and you're taking in the music and you're taking in the, the atmosphere of the place. And you sit down and you have this entire sensory engagement with your dining partner, your date perhaps, and the food in front of you and the wine. And it's this wonderful, wonderful thing. But you return to that restaurant every Friday night for a year or for five years, or for 30 years. And over time, you're no longer seeing the restaurant. You're no longer engaging with the ambiance or with the, the place itself. You have become desensitized to it. Equally, you might go for a walk in the forest near your home. And your first time down that path, you may be moved and stirred by this, this landscape. But over time, repetition will dull that, that sense of awe and wonder. So that's one sense in which we become desensitized. The other, and this is very tightly defined here, right at the end of the passage that you can see on your screen, may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity from possessiveness. And that possessiveness, I think, is key because the other thing that happens as we become overexposed to something is that we increasingly define that thing or describe that thing in terms of ourselves. We go to this restaurant every Friday night for a year. And what does it become? Our restaurant. My restaurant. We go for a walk down the forest path. And what does it become? My path. This is where I go for my walk. We remove these things from their true context and we... We store them as a part of our own identity. Not only are we no longer seeing the thing itself, but we are increasingly unable to differentiate between the thing itself and ourselves. So we become 
larger and slower. We become weighed down by this familiarity. But fantasy fiction offers us recovery in both senses. It can show us a world that is new. And not just new in the sense of novel. It can show us familiar things reframed such that we see them again clearly. Our familiarity is dispelled, and thus we get to apprehend something which we have looked past time and time and time again with fresh eyes, and thus our sense of awe and our sense of fear and despair, our full emotional palette is restored to us. We are renewed in that sense. And that is something that, in a way, all fantasy fiction, all, all fiction, excuse me, can, can do. That is something that, that stories can do. But fantasy fiction in particular can show us things that we have never seen before. It can show us entirely new perspectives on familiar ideas. So we are given recovery by fantasy fiction. We're also given the possibility of escape. In what the misusers are fond of calling real life, capital R, capital L, escape is evidently as a rule very practical and may even be heroic. In real life, it is difficult to blame it unless it fails. In criticism, it would seem to be the worse, the better it succeeds. Evidently, we are faced by a misuse of words and also by a confusion of thought. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to, th he tries to get out and go home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls. The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. In using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word, and what is more, they are confusing, not always by sincere error, the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. Escape from the place that you belong is one thing. Escape from the cell in which you have been imprisoned, as Tolkien would argue, is true for all of us immortal souls such as we are, is something else entirely. We have, he would argue, little loyalty to the real world because this is not our true home. This is not all that there is. Thus, to dream of escape, to look beyond the bounds of our mortal world, this primary world, is not the flight of the deserter. We are not abandoning our post and, and fleeing toward comfort and security, or even momentary distraction. This is the idle dream of the prisoner. We are bound by walls of reality. We are bound by what is true. But why should we be limited by that? What is the virtue of being limited by that? What is the moral harm in dreaming of dragons. Good. Yes, Jacques says, reading fairy stories does not mean that you're out of touch, deserting. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Good. Let's take a look then at the third of the compensations. This is consolation, and this comes in a couple of different varieties too. Far more important is the consolation of the happy ending. 
Almost, I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least, I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function, but the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. Consolation, then, in its broadest sense, is simply the sense of justice. We read a story in which the good and well and the wicked and badly, and we know that this is emotionally true, and we have that rush of catharsis, and our faith in the world is restored because that's how things work. It isn't, of course, always how things work in the real world, but in our fiction, we get our happy ever after. And that sense that the, the world around us, that, that human experience is a just and good and virtuous thing, that offers us consolation. But look further here. Look at this word, eucatastrophe. This is a very famous word. Any of you who have studied Tolkien before will, of course, have heard the word eucatastrophe. It is effectively the word catastrophe with the prefix eu, meaning good attached to it. It is a good catastrophe. It is a good accident, almost. Eucatastrophe is a moment of resolution, uh, uh, an ending that comes not from the actions of the protagonist, that comes not from the structures of the conflict and the plot, but comes seemingly out of nowhere. If you've read The Hobbit already, then you will know that the arrival of the eagles is heralded by Tolkien himself as one of the great moments of eucatastrophe. The eagles arrive, and Bilbo and his party are saved. This is eucatastrophic. This is just dumb luck. Except, of course, that it isn't just dumb luck. Oftentimes, eucatastrophe will be described as a kind of deus ex machina, that the plot will simply unfold. A magic wand will be waved, and suddenly all of the, the conflicts and the problems that our protagonist is facing will just fall away. Just, they, they will just be undone. The, the god will descend from the rafters of the, the Greek stage and will, will magically transform everyone back, will magically undo what harmful spell has been cast, will magically solve all of the protagonist's problems and let them have their happy ever after ending. But eucatastrophe isn't narrative in that sense. Not in the sense that the deus ex machina is narrative. The deus ex machina arises when we have backed ourselves into a corner and we need intervention. We need the intervention of a deity to solve the problems of our plot. But eucatastrophe doesn't work narratively in that way. Eucatastrophe, rather than being narrative, is, is instead philosophical. It is instead theological because eucatastrophe is really about grace. Eucatastrophe is really about the intercession of unasked for, unearned grace. It is a moment of kindness that exceeds luck, that exceeds contrivance, that is fundamental to our interactions with God in the broadest sense. Thus, 
Tolkien's reliance on eucatastrophe and this too, this is, this is being written, scrolled on a post-it note and stuck to the wall of, of wherever it is that you happen to be uh, enjoying this, this seminar session. Eucatastrophe is not simply luck. It is not serendipity. It is not, not a mere happenstance. It is not the slow and deep moving of, of, of plot elements that we haven't yet discovered. It is simply divine grace. It comes unlooked for, unheralded, unasked for, and without a price. And that can seem difficult. That can be difficult for many readers of Tolkien. Many readers of Tolkien who don't share his, his religious faith, his understanding of God's grace. It can seem cheap. But it is one of the ways in which Tolkien's Catholicism is a fundamental underpinning of, of all of his fiction. It must be understood that this is how he sees the world if we are to make sense of his... I was going to say, if we are to make sense of his inclusion of eucatastrophe, his, his celebration of eucatastrophe, and I'm not sure that's entirely true. I don't think... I don't think that it is entirely true that we must know that Tolkien was a Catholic in order to make sense of eucatastrophe. Because it works within the fictional frame without, I think, that, that autobiographical intrusion. But it certainly makes sense. It certainly sits comfortably for us to know these two things and to hold them, to hold them closely together. This is, as I say, vital. We will be looking at recovery, at escape, and we will certainly be looking at consolation as we move through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, because these are stories about stories. These are stories about people being swept up in stories, swept up in adventure, about relating stories to one another, about being defined by stories, about prophecy and about fate. These are stories about stories, and the characters within these novels experience each of these consolations as they move through their own stories. So we're going to be keeping track of this. And in that sense, On Fairy Stories is a powerful primer for what we'll see in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. The first in more broad strokes, and the second in infinitely more ambitious strokes. That takes us to the end of On Fairy Stories. Let's, uh, Let's take some questions before we wrap up tonight. I'm well aware that I have A, run long, and B, pretty much ignored the chat here. Yes, <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Uh, Lauren Bingham on Twitter says, you catastrophe is an unasked for grace or kindness. It comes with that price. What a beautiful thought. I'll be thinking about this. Good. I'm glad, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us. Kate Matt says, you catastrophe, Alistair's favorite word. Second favorite word. It's my second favorite word. My favorite word is the word that Tolkien invented to describe the region in the north of Arda, the, the polar region of Arda, these grinding sheets of, of ice, these jagged chasms of ice that, that create this treacherous and all but impassable landscape. And he took this, this awful nightmarish tableau and he called it the Helkaraxa. That is my favorite Tolkien word. But eucatastrophe is a pretty good word too. <laughs> dry heaving llamas which is perhaps the best username i've ever seen on twitter says you catastrophe is something that is completely absent in a crap sack world that's absolutely true i think that there are um yes this is one of the ways in which tolkien's work speaks to a particular kind of elevation of spirit it speaks to a kind of, of hopefulness and optimism 
um, that isn't always apparent. Tolkien can tell terrible stories about terrible things happening to people that he can uh, terrible tell bleak stories. Um, but the presence of eucatastrophe is as it's intended to be, I think a comfort. Yeah. Good. Um, Wow, G.J. Corbin asks a, a very, um, wow, G.J. Corbin asks a very powerful question. This is an interesting one. In the past, you've praised uh, J.K. Rowling's naming conventions. How, does, how do, I guess, Rowling and Tolkien compare on this front their different strengths and weaknesses? Would a Harry Potter by, <laughs> would a Harry Potter by Tolkien or a Middle Earth by Rowling compare? Uh, no. No, neither, neither of those things would work. Um, this is one of our problems, I think, when we talk about fantasy literature. Um, this is a, an easy trap to fall into because we categorize these books by, by genre. We categorize these books by the way in which the story approaches its subject matter. If you've listened to me talk about genre before, you'll have heard me talk about about romance novels not being about the first date, the second date, the misunderstanding, the run through the airport, the, the kiss, the happy ever after. That's not what a romance novel is about. The romance novel is about eliciting that feeling in the reader of falling in love. A horror story is not about the specific mechanics of the serial killer or the monster or whatever. It's about the feeling of horror. Fantasy stories are about an emotional engagement with with the unreal, with speculative fiction. We create new things from whole cloth, and then we engage with them emotionally. As that's to contrast with science fiction, in which we engage with the created elements intellectually. Um, so while Rowling and Tolkien both write fantasy novels, they couldn't be more different. Rowling writes something halfway between a coming-of-age tale uh, a fairy story, certainly. Um, yeah, there are other disparate elements there, boarding school adventure being being one of them. What Tolkien is writing, particularly once we get out of The Hobbit, is history. He's he's charting the movement of a world in a way that Rowling doesn't. So to compare the two, hmm, difficult, difficult. Yeah. Um, are we talking a little about George R. R. Martin? Yes, yes. Oh, yes, of course. And Nikki V says, I don't think Tolkien could do Harry Potter. He hated allegory. Yes. <laughs> yes, I like that. Good. Oh, we're talking about Hal Karaksa? Good. Crash Test Bonnie says, Alistair, can you say good, good, good? We need to cap it for a gif. No. No, no, I don't think that can happen. I don't think that's a good idea. It'll arise organically, Bonnie. We'll, we'll get to it, I promise. If I haven't already done it this evening, which I'm sure I probably have. Yes. Um, oh, Dylan says, the most important part of catastrophe is the catastrophe. Things have to fall apart in a way that appears tragic, but is revealed to be for the better. Yes, that's an excellent observation, Dylan. That's, uh, that is a vital part. It can't simply be the intercession of of unexpected good fortune. It can't simply be that serendipitous moment of, of discovery or revelation. It has to be that, that yes, we suffer the catastrophe, that things fall apart, that all looks lost, and then the intercession of grace. So yes, that's a really good catch. Good. Right. 
Okay, I think that will actually then do it for tonight. You guys, this has been this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week. Next week, let me call up the final slide here and show you this so that we can track it. Um, next week, The Hobbit, Chapter 1, An Unexpected Party, 9 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, January the 19th, 2017. This is going to be probably fairly long. This is going to be a fairly in-depth discussion because so many things happen in the first chapter of The Hobbit, not necessarily plot elements, but there are so many different ideas, different perspectives, different assumptions, different narrative voices. We start The Hobbit with a powder keg of, of, of narrative. We start with a huge amount of detail that is orchestrated beautifully. And we start with one of the most engaging narrative turns I've ever seen in terms of our our adjustment into the perspective of our protagonist. It's it's a thing to behold. It's a thing of wonder. It's a thing of beauty. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And these readings, I should say, are all fairly short, too. One of the reasons that I'm taking 18 months to do this is that the readings should not take you more than about 30 minutes or so to get through. So if that, honestly, for, for the first chapter of The Hobbit. So go read the first chapter of The Hobbit. We will be back here next Thursday evening for some in-depth discussion, for some some commentary, for some questions, for your thoughts for whatever thoughts I can salvage. Uh, <laughs> good. <laughs> Excellent. We will get to all of that next week, guys. Thank you all so much for hanging out. I will say too, that if you have questions, if you have thoughts, please, please get in touch. Email me, alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com or use the hashtag, what are we using? Back again. See, I can't even remember the hashtag that we're using for this thing. The hashtag back again on Twitter. And I will see those tweets. And also, you can head on over to the Storywonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. I'll try and get something set up over there so that we can discuss in a more leisurely fashion. We can have our very own gathering of the Inklings over there at the Bird and Baby. Thank you so much for listening tonight. I hope to see you all again next week. Until then, take care. Take care.